When you pick up your phone in the morning and you open it up, what's the first thing that you look at? Is it a social? What if it were a digital health application that was there to help with your osteoarthritis and reminding you about something that ideally you should be trying to do that morning? Do you think that would encourage you to apply yourself to the exercises, the diet, the mood management, the medication that you might otherwise like to try to do to help with your osteoarthritis management. Digital interventions, including apps on mobile phones, virtual reality, the internet, telephones, are becoming quite pervasive in healthcare. They've been recommended by a lot of organizations, including the World Health Organization, to complement traditional care. There's been a big shift towards those digital interventions, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. And increasingly, we're seeing that type of shift continue, both as an to face-to-face healthcare, but also oftentimes as a standalone intervention. On this episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Andrea Delisola to discuss digital interventions in the context of osteoarthritis. Hello, Andrea, and welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thank you so much for coming along. Now, before we get into the really important content around digital uh, platforms for osteoarthritis care, I just want to spend a little bit of time getting to know you. In the first instance, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? Yes, absolutely. I graduated physiotherapy in Italy, where I also uh, specialized in musculoskeletal rehabilitation. After my studies, I had the chance to work for a couple of years in a hospital where I worked mainly with musculoskeletal patients that had uh, complex conditions, often also comorbidities. And while I was there, I had the chance also to supervise students coming from a university in the Netherlands, in Eindhoven. And the students were coming to us to do some internships. So through this connection, I had the chance to move for six months in the Netherlands as teaching assistant. So this was my first move abroad. From there, I then moved again to Glasgow in Scotland, in the UK, when I managed to obtain a scholarship to do a PhD on neostartritis and more specific on clinical phenotypes that we define as subgroups of people with specific characteristics. And from there, after my PhD, instead, I moved to Sweden, where I did my postdoc and now, finally, I managed to become a research associate still there in Sweden in the, the same group at Lund University. Fantastic. And from a day-to-day perspective, Andrea, what do most days consist of? It is not what many people will define the most exciting day. It's a lot of research. So I work in an epidemiology unit. So we work with big data, with database where we have thousands of people, maybe even 500,000 to 1 million, because we work with big registers. And therefore, a lot of my day is working with data, analyzing data and preparing this data set for uh, analysis. And also all the other parts that usually is connected to research. So I have teaching and I supervise students that are with us, new PhD students uh, that come and go all the time. Wonderful. It sounds very full. Now, when you're not at work, Andrea, what do you like to do? I I actually love climbing 
and I come from Italy and we have beautiful mountains in the north of Italy and I, I really miss them also because here in Sweden in the region where I live I think the highest point is 200 meters so you, you can imagine there are no big walls and, but there is a big bouldering community so we climb big stones and that's fun enough I think it keeps me entertained that's fantastic um, and whereabouts in Italy are you originally from? I'm from uh, Turin. Wonderful. I was recently watching a, f- a free climber climb El Capitan in Yosemite. It, uh, it's enough to scare me never to do any rock climbing in my life. It's a beautiful documentary, actually. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, scary. Yeah. Now, Andrea, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Uh, I would say that I'm surely energetic. I have trouble sitting still. I have to do many things at the same time. And this helped me, I guess, also with my career. At the same time, I feel I'm uh, curious. I can get easily interested in basically whatever. Uh, I'm an avid uh, non-fiction book reader. And I'll say that I'm an optimist. And I guess you need it when you move around a lot, when you relocate a lot. You need to believe that it's always like for the better that uh, things are gonna get better otherwise it's uh, it's hard with uncertainties and i will say i'm stubborn because obviously not everything goes well and uh, even if you are optimist you need to like go through a hard moment and so just like uh, keep going as uh, i think i did quite a lot of that and i still do uh, in my career and I guess I'm left with one word and I will pick I will pick team in the way that I really enjoy being part of a team. And I feel that I thrive in collaborating with other people. I don't feel really as a lone wolf. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful qualities. And, you know, I think as a, a researcher embarking upon their career, I think they will stand you well. Just one, one particular quality that you mentioned that I would imagine probably uh, makes itself difficult on a regular basis. You mentioned energetic and sitting still for a long period of time. I would imagine in the research context, despite the fact that we're always promoting physical activity, that must get quite hard. Yes, it is. Some days are quite hard and has been particularly challenging now with, with COVID. So I'm actually, I was surprised that I can cope with the work, but I think that is, is demanding on a different level in the way that there are a lot of tasks and you know, I'm very busy. I have uh, a lot of problem solving uh, to do. And that probably takes a bit of the of the energy part. So <laughs> it, it worked out at the end. And uh, in the afternoon, I'll try, as I said, to climb as much as possible. <laughs> to chew up, chew up some of that energy. That sounds great. And you mentioned you're an avid nonfiction reader. Is there any particular area of nonfiction that is interesting you more or you're digging into at the moment? I I think that's the point, a bit whatever. So I'm really interested. And in our research group, we actually have a nonfiction book club going on with other researchers. So we meet around and pick books and we try to variate a lot. We just read a book about design and now we went into one about masculinity. So a bit whatever i try also not to read too much about science well it sounds like you probably get plenty of that in your day-to-day activities yes i do 
Now, Andrea, we'll dig into the main content of today, which is, I think, a really important and increasingly one that I think many patients are going towards with so many resources that are out there. Now, you've benefited us by you know, publishing some work recently in the prestigious JAMA journal. And I just want to explore that a little bit further. But in the first instance, you know, what are digital interventions and what are the potential benefits of those digital interventions compared to face-to-face -face delivery of care? So digital interventions is usually an umbrella term that refers to the use of modern information and communication technology to deliver healthcare. So it's a very general term. So it can include a bit whatever makes use of, for example, smartphones, but also just SMS or wearable devices to deliver healthcare. In osteoarthritis, this has been focused mainly on the delivery of education. So what is the disease, what a person should do to manage it, but also in the delivery of exercise, because these are what we call the first line interventions. So something that all the people should receive, but potentially this could be used also for other type of care. There are many advantages of digital interventions. The first that I will mention is the ease of access. So people can actually access care wherever they are and whenever they want. And this is very important, for example, for exercise. I'm a physiotherapist and most people mention the lack of time as the main barrier to engage in exercise. And when we look at the population that is affected by osteoarthritis, we see that they're still working. They're under 65. And so they actually really struggle with time. They have a family to take care and all the other commitments. So these digital apps are very helpful to actually lock in and engage people that feel that they don't have a lot of time. Another important aspect, I will say, is that they can reach remote areas or areas where people don't have the facilities, don't have maybe a rehabilitation center or an hospital. And this is very important. But also on this point, if we just think about COVID, for a couple of years, it's like if we all lived in an area without facility because we could not reach them, we had to stay at home. And so this helped a lot of people. And we should not forget that we are still in a pandemic. So there are frail people that cannot expose themselves to hospital environments or to even rehabilitation centers. So for them, this is still very valuable. Another very important point is that they facilitate long-term monitoring or long-term engagement with exercise. This is another problem usually that maybe people are willing to try and do some sessions of exercise, but unfortunately as a long time commitment. People need to keep active their entire life when they have osteoarthritis. And apps can actually facilitate this because they can remind you about exercise. They're very convenient. You can just like open maybe an app or this digital program and do a bit of exercise here and there when you need. And uh, another point is that they are potentially cheaper. So this means that we can scale up the offer of size uh, and education for patients with osteoarthritis. And this is very important as the prevalence of osteoarthritis, but also other musculoskeletal disease is actually rising. So there are more and more people with this disease. And so the need of rehabilitation is not met currently. 
So digital apps could help us to meet these needs and to reach more people that will actually benefit from these interventions. Fantastic, Andrea. It's a great explanation. And I mean, I think helps us to understand, you know, I think for a lot of people who have osteoarthritis, there are a lot of barriers for them getting to appropriate care, you know, whether that be issues like access, affordability, and doing it in, in a timely way that's hopefully consistent with their lifestyle. Now, you've just published a paper in JAMA that I guess tested the efficacy of this particular type of digital platform compared to another intervention. Can you just tell us a little bit about that study and what the intervention involved? Yes. So as you said, we compare the pain relief that people with the knee or arthritis experienced after receiving education and exercise through an app or through an intervention uh, where they met face-to-face with a physiotherapist. So as I mentioned before, I work with big data or big registers. So also for these studies, we used healthcare registers. So these people already underwent the intervention and we analyzed their data. So we had roughly 2,700 people that used the app to do exercise and education. And we had uh, a bit more than 4,000 that instead underwent the face-to-face intervention. And so briefly, just to explain how these interventions work, since 2008, Sweden has implemented a self-management program that is delivered in uh, primary cares, where people can receive up to three sessions of education and up to 12 exercise sessions with a physiotherapist. The entire program can take up to 12 weeks. And this is the face-to-face intervention that we analyzed in the study. In the last year, a company that originated as a spin-off from Lund University converted this program in a digital app. So this means that the principles behind the program are the same, but the activities have been readapted to fit the new digital format. So this means that people obviously don't do one hour of exercise or one hour of education, but they do very small sessions of five to 10 minutes that are proposed to them every day. So in the 12 weeks that will take to a person to go to complete the face-to-face program, through the app, this person would receive roughly 160 short activities of five to 10 minutes. So these were the two programs and we compare the pain relief experience by the people in these programs. And what we found is that they actually experience similar pain reduction, regardless of the modality of delivery of exercise and education. And uh, this is very, uh, and actually in average, we saw that people undergoing a digital intervention seem to experience even a larger benefit. It was not a big difference, but the pain reduction seems a bit larger in this, in this group. Uh, However, due to the type of study that we did, we uh, can't really say if it's the intervention that is causing this change or if are other factors. In fact, what we notice is that the users, so the population that use digital apps is different from the one that instead undergoes a face-to-face intervention. So people that decided to use the app, they are in average younger, they are more educated, they are more often still employed, so they're not retired. 
And they also usually have a bit less pain, so less severe symptoms than the people that undergo the face-to-face. So there can also be that there are some other factors that could explain this slightly larger pain reduction. Andrea, at what time point? I mean, obviously the program goes for 12 weeks, but did you assess pain at 12 weeks and did you assess any other outcomes? And were the outcomes broadly consistent for function and, and other parameters? So the program lasts 12 weeks. So we actually uh, looked at the effect after that the program was completed. And through the app, instead, a person can potentially undergo the program for as long as they want, because the activities are then uh, reproposed and again mixed to make a various program. And uh, But also there we put a cutoff of uh, the 12 weeks to make the two interventions uh, as comparable as possible. We look at other outcomes and we saw that, as you say, that the results are consistent. People tend to improve an average in both programs and the results are also similar. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It's great to hear that you could probably get similar results, albeit potentially with a different population using a digital intervention compared to a face-to-face intervention. But before we get too excited about that digital platform that you're just talking about, Andrea, is there any limitations to this particular style of care? I will say that one of the limitations could be the limited possibility of personalizing these interventions. In a way, uh, don't get me wrong, they are amazing and I will call them anyway personalized interventions because they can tailor the type of exercise to the symptoms of the patient. But people with osteoarthritis, or in, in general, everyone, we have complex motor strategies. And also the symptomatology is very different. So sometimes we need very specific adaption for a person to be able to do that type of exercise. And this is even more evident when we talk about strategies to actually accomplish some specific functional tasks. So I had patients with osteoarthritis that really wanted to kneel down, either to do gardening or to play with their grandchildren. And it's hard to identify one strategy that will fit everyone. And therefore, it's hard that an app could actually personalize this strategy to this level. Maybe in the future, technology is going very fast. But at the moment, I see this as one of the limitations. And the other, I will say, is the lack of social interactions. So people may actually isolate a bit more and it's very beneficial to, to meet other patients with uh, osteoarthritis. But uh, if I have to be honest, these are, these are surely limitations, but I think they need to be seen in the context of the use of digital applications. As I see it, uh, digital applications are for a very specific population. So very briefly, when we talk about treatments for osteoarthritis, we represent them as a pyramid. And this pyramid has three levels. At the top, we have the surgery that only few people should get. In the middle, we have medications and other interventions. And at the base, at the moment, we have exercise and education. Digital application, in my opinion, should represent a fourth step that comes even before the exercise with a physiotherapist in the way that everyone should undergo maybe exercise digitally and try that. And if they need personalized advice, then they can proceed and go ahead and meet a physiotherapist after that they already tried it to exercise. And maybe they even seen that it works, but I need something more. And this, as we said before, could actually free 
a lot of the rehabilitation and personnel that could actually take care of people that have more severe symptoms and actually instead we will have apps that can help people that are actually feeling good still working don't have the time to go to a physio so in this context i see these limitations being a bit less important let's say wonderful now andrea if i could just dig into i guess the application itself a little bit further when you mentioned the word exercise and I guess prescription of exercise in the app, what are you referring to? You're, you're referring to strength-based programs? You're referring to physical activity programs? So I, I guess that these uh, programs are usually defined as neuromuscular programs. So just to make it simple, uh, it's a program that aims at improving the way in which we move. And uh, the strength gain is usually consequential, but is not always the main point of this. So since it's an app and people will do exercise at home, these exercises are usually very simple, can be sitting and standing from a chair. And this resemble what in a gym we will call a squat, for example. Or it could be like moving the body weight from one leg to the another, trying to keep the alignment of the leg that is bearing the weight. And these are just two simple examples of the program. Wonderful. Now, if a person were to present with other needs, so for example, you know, they were carrying excess weight, they were depressed, if they had some desire to control flares using medication, are they functionalities that are provided within the app or would that require additional care? So the, the app gives the possibility to be in contact with a physiotherapist. And this contact could happen through an asynchronous chat, but if needed, also through a phone or video call. So for the symptoms that are more closely related to osteoarthritis, like flares, there will be the possibility to consult a physiotherapist. And the clinicians will then instead advise the person to contact uh, GP, if there are maybe more specific issues or issues that are not really related with the uh, rehabilitation and the exercise per se. So in a way, uh, despite the, uh, the intervention does not provide everything, is anyway integrated in a process of care. So people accessing the app can be sure that if uh, they are in need of something else, they could even be redirected or encouraged to meet a medical doctor, for example. Wonderful. Now, as much as I love looking at my phone or my iPad um, and engaging with that on a regular basis, what motivates a person to continue to go back to the app on a regular basis sufficient that they're actually going to gain uh, the function, the improvements in pain that you're talking about? Are there any cues to facilitate that? I will say that the main motivator is probably the pain reduction in a way that people feel better. Obviously, the app provides reminders. So this is something that, that helps. But I don't think that these are, there is a reminder annoying enough to convince a, people to, a person to exercise if this person doesn't feel better. And we are very lucky because exercise makes us feel better. So I think that that is the best reminder. Plus, like the phone beeps and vibrates sometimes just to tell us that we have again to, to do exercise. Now, Andrea, you also mentioned that the population in the digital application arm was slightly different to the other comparator arm. 
are there likely important baseline characteristics of a population who would engage with a digital platform with regards you know their technological literacy or health literacy and obviously the accessibility to a smart device but are there other aspects such as that that you think are important with engaging with the uh, digital platform that you mentioned surely there there may be this type of aspects I would say that now digital literacy is, I would say, almost widespread. Obviously, new generations are more and more familiar with the use of apps. But I think that there may be an aspect of enjoyment uh, of using these uh, apps that is surely needs to be captured and is very hard to capture with this quantitative data. But we have seen the same in exercise. Uh, people tend to do what they like tend to do the type of exercise that they like. And this can be treated as a type of exercise. So there are people that probably prefer not to go to the gym and they use their phone and do a lot of exercise at home. And I guess that they will benefit more from this intervention than if we instead force them to go to an actual gym or meet a physiotherapist when they don't want. So there surely are aspects intrinsic in the population that can make them enjoy more the type of interventions, and through the enjoyment, they could maybe experience better results. Wonderful. Now, are there particular resources that are digital or otherwise that you'd like to, I guess, advocate for that might be suitable for the population of people that have osteoarthritis? I guess that nowadays there are a lot of resources available. So, for example, the app that we analyzed in our study is available, at least in Sweden, but I think is available also in other countries on the Play Store or the App Store, and it's not the only app. And another thing that I would like to say is that there are many resources that are not so big that one can find them maybe online. So, for example, during the COVID pandemic, when many lockdowns were implemented, I had a lot of colleagues that started uh, exercise groups through Zoom or other video chats. And they worked amazingly and they are still implementing this type of interventions for people that need them. So one of the advice will be first to get in contact with either a GP or a physiotherapist to know if there is something like this available. And after like surely like looking on online, there are plenty of resources. And we'll provide some linkages to those in the show notes for today's show so that that way if people want to get access to particular resources, they can. Andrea, now, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? I will say that improving the condition of the healthcare worker at the moment is the most important aspect. We have like too few people in healthcare and often they work too much. And the COVID pandemic has been an eye-opener for this. And surely if we want to improve our healthcare, we should start from the people that actually make healthcare. Yeah, very true. Burnout is a major issue worldwide at the moment. And unfortunately, I think with the ongoing concerns, only likely to continue to get worse. Now, as someone who's uh, starting out and embarking on a really valuable career, how do you continue to learn to stay on top of things? Surely there is a lot of uh, hard work, a lot of reading and a lot of studying. But I will say that 
How I learned the most is through my colleagues. I have amazing co-workers, very, very talented scientists that are around me all the time. So I feel pretty lucky because the only thing I need to do is to keep an open mind and always think that either I don't know enough or that is uh, always valuable to listen to them. There is always something to learn. And once I just keep an open mind, I get very stimulated and then learning becomes uh, easier. And probably another aspect is teaching. Uh, again, the students are amazing. They come up with so many questions. They really challenge me. And uh, so many times I came back home and I read a lot of studies and research and otherwise I would not have read just to give them an answer. And so they really broaden my perspective. Yeah, I know those uh, qualities of being able to listen and also having an open mind are so, so important. Now, why do you do what you do? What's your primary motivation? So I will say the primary motivation is that I find the topic of osteoarthritis and especially when it's associated with other conditions so that it becomes more complex, I find it very interesting and I love the idea that what we do could potentially improve the life of the millions that are suffering from this disease. But obviously, I don't wake up every day thinking of this. So actually, I think what keeps me going in the everyday work is that I enjoy the problem solving of research. I enjoy sitting, looking through the data, trying to understand what they are telling me, what's the story behind and I think that this problem solving is what keeps me going in the everyday life. The curiosity, I think, that you were mentioning before. Yeah, that's such such a valuable characteristic. Now, Andrea, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? I will say support research. Uh, it's extremely challenging to survive in a research environment because the resources are very limited. And I know that the resources are limited for everyone, but if I would have my billboard, I would be a bit selfish. And I think that uh, what we do is important. And especially in a time of crisis, like, like economic crisis, like we are going through now, research is often one of the first uh, areas that receive cuts because it's not always seen as necessary in certain aspects. And, uh, and I will say that it is not true. So uh, support research. Yeah, you should become a proponent for that. I can see you advocating with politicians to ensure that that actually happens. But no, no, no it's it's so important. And, uh, you know, I think if we're forward looking and future thinking about the application of the work that we do, um, and when you particularly look at return on investment dollars, it's a, it's a fantastic investment. Now, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge, wisdom that you'd like to give us in closing? I think I would like to say to the to patients that have osteoarthritis and they have pain to to get out and not not sit home alone with your pain and your symptoms because there are many people that struggle with these or with other diseases and it's great to get out and talk about it and get to know more about your disease but also feel connected with uh, with other people and this surely also will get you moving and will make you feel uh, feel better so even when the situation looks very dark. It's think that it's probably going to get better and the pain is probably going to go down if you try to manage it. 
great advice and hopefully a wonderful way for people to listen to the sage words that you've shared with us um, and hopefully instill those in their day-to-day practice. Now, Andrea, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us, sharing the insights from the important work that you're doing and congratulations on the body of work that you're accruing and good luck with everything. Thank you, David. And thank you so much for having me. Now, for many people, they don't like looking at or engaging with their phone or their iPad. For many people, they prefer not to be reminded. But for a lot of people, changing behaviors is hard. And if you have that regular reminder that's with you most of the day, oftentimes that improves your access to that particular intervention where you're trying to change that habit, that behavior, and ingrain that in your day-to-day activities. Now, today we've spoken about one particular digital platform, but there are lots of them that are out there that hopefully can enhance your day-to-day care, both with regards exercise, physical activity, diet, mood management, medication, a whole lot of different resources that we'll try to provide some links for in the show notes. We hope that this enhances the management that hopefully you're getting on a day-to-day basis with ideal face-to-face care. If you found this helpful, that's fantastic. If you're looking for additional resources, hopefully one of the other podcasts that we've recorded will be advantageous for you. Again, thank you so much for your support. If you like what you heard, please rate us on your podcast provider. Between now and when next we speak, please do take care of yourself. And if you have the chance, someone else as well. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.